Welcome to the Centerpoint Church podcast. At Centerpoint Church, we are a community of believers impacted by God's saving grace and the love He demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Our response to this amazing grace is to allow it to transform our lives and to share it with others. As a body of believers, we find our purpose in knowing Christ, growing together, and reaching beyond ourselves to help others do the same. This week's message comes from 2 Samuel 1, where David learns of the death of both Saul and Jonathan. I'm really excited to get to uh, hang out again in in our Pursuing God series. It's uh, week eight in this series. Can you believe that? Eight weeks. I mean, we're already to to August 1st. August 1st is tomorrow. I'm sorry, children. Um, School is coming for you. There's no way to avoid it. It's coming. And the summer has been fantastic. I'm pretty grateful that, that we have gotten to spend the last two months tracing the goodness of God uh, as uh, people have pursued God's heart throughout history. People including Samuel, Saul, Jonathan, and David. We've spent the last two months hanging out with these people. And if you're new here or you're here for the very first time today, I'm glad you're here. And I want to just catch you up just a little bit. I'm not going to take you all the way back to the beginning, but I think context matters because you're going to hear some words that we've been using, words like anointing, security, intimacy, and integrity. We've used these words over the course of these last several weeks to describe the ways in which God has interacted with these people, with Saul and Jonathan and with David. But we've also used these words as these people have interacted with one another through anointing, security, intimacy. And, and last week, hey, Warren, you, you heard a, a powerful word about, about the word power. I mean, that's, that also has been true of these words. And integrity. The, the Spirit of the Lord is upon David and, and has been for a while now, which has made Saul both angry and envious. Because David has something Saul used to have, and now he has, and and Saul wants it back, or at the very least, he does not want David to have it. So Saul has been chasing David. He's chased him through the desert of Engedi. He's chased him through the desert of Ziph to Hakalah, and he's plotted to take David's life on multiple occasions. And yet somehow, David has still experienced intimacy with God in the way that the Lord has protected him and and spared his life each time. And the result of this this intimacy, this security, is integrity. He knows he, he will one day be king, but it will be in God's time and it will be in God's way, not David's way. And last week, we, we spent some time in both 1 Samuel 24 and, and 1 Samuel 26, and we saw how David's peers tried to peer pressure him to take Saul's life, but such actions would have led David out of integrity. His life wouldn't have been workable, kind of like Saul's. You see, Saul has chosen his own path and his own desires consistently. Over and over again, Saul chooses his way, And his life and his rule are coming to a close at this time in our text. 
And he's chosen his own way and his own path. And the spirit has been taken away from him by God because the role of the king was to engage in ruling God's way. As we come to our text today, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we're on the cusp of history here as we begin this journey. Because Saul and Jonathan and all of Saul's army have been killed by the Philistines. And 1 Samuel comes to a close. And David had been out destroying the Amalekites and has settled in for a little rest as we open 2 Samuel chapter 1. So as we get there, as you get there in your pew Bible, the the words of the text are going to be on the screen for you. But I want to pray and invite the Lord's anointing on the text in our time together. So God, would you pray with me? God, as we come into this space, as we open the word of the Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you would have us see and hear today? We know that your Holy Spirit illumines the word for us, and so come Holy Spirit, Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that your word would be our rule. Your spirit, our teacher, in the glory of Jesus, even in an Old Testament text, would be our single concern. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, friends, hear these words from the book that we love from 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. I'm going to stop right there. I want to stop there and I'm going to spend a little time there. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. We might read that and say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I I don't understand. Why is that significant? It, It doesn't make sense to me. It's a little like paying $80 for a pair of jeans that's mostly torn fabric and not whole fabric. I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me either, right? And I hear all of the young people saying, get off my lawn, boomer. I get it. And I'm not a boomer, (laughs) but get off my lawn, right? But the tearing of one's clothes in, in the Jewish context, in the ancient Jewish culture was not a fashion statement. It wasn't about trying to look cool either. To tear one's clothes in, in the time that this event took place was all about expressing mourning, grief, and loss. It was a public and powerful expression of grief in ancient times. Jewish culture still engages in these practices, I'm told, but it's a ritual that's much less spontaneous and more regulated in the 21st century. So we don't have to feel quite so bad when we're, when we're hiding our grief, because when I first read this, I was like, it would be so easy to have been caring for people in the time that this scripture was read, because we could tell that they were grieving, and now we mask it, and we hide our grief. 
So today it's a little more customary in this text and in this context for a, a rabbi to cut a person's clothing at a funeral while they are grieving and, and uttering words about God's sovereignty. But here, today, in 2 Samuel 1, a little more than a thousand years before Jesus was born, the people of God were mourning. And they were mourning because the Lord's anointed and his entire entourage was killed by the Philistines. And their grief was real. It was on full display for David to see. And he knew instantly by the look of the person who showed up, this guy who came to him in Ziklag. Grief is real. And grief is a, a complex, important, and universal emotion. It, it's an emotion that we often try to avoid and, and rush through, right? Because it's debilitating. Have you ever been confronted with grief? I know many of you have. And I know many of you are still finding your way through grief, and I want you to know that I see you, and it's okay. I'm grieving with you. Because there's nothing quite like that phone call. There's nothing quite like that ultrasound or that diagnosis or, or that news that brings us to our knees is there. And, and since grief is such a universal emotion, it's radically unpredictable for sure, and yet there are moments that grief can be predictable. Even when we don't know what to think or what to say, we still want to know what happened or what's going on and what's next. The same is true for David. He sees this person grieving who has also fallen at his feet which is what one does in front of royalty I think David knew it doesn't the text doesn't tell us that David knew but I think David knew because this guy comes and just prostrates himself at David's feet and and rather than jump to conclusions here David gets curious verse 3 where have you come from David asked him he answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. Now, the fact that this person escaped from the Israelite camp is going to communicate some things to David, that David is now dealing with an enemy. This person is not somebody who's with him, but he's somebody who's against him. And yet, his curiosity seems to be piqued. The man continues, the men fled from battle, he replied. Many of them fled and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. I mean, he had to know something had happened, right? Because his clothes were torn, but he was prepared for this. Was he prepared? He couldn't have been prepared for this. What is David thinking? Shock? Anger? Grief? Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? In his shock and his anger, David remained curious and is unbelievably attentive. First, his, his best friend, the, the man he loved more than any of his wives, has been killed. I mean, David and Jonathan have been through so much together. They loved each other 
so deeply. And if David is going to be king, David and Jonathan were going to do this together. They were going to serve the people together, and the news of his death had to be overwhelming. I don't care if David had some inkling of this ahead of time. It had to stop him in his tracks. But what about Saul? What about the matter of Saul's death? What runs through David's mind concerning that news? I suppose we'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 6. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So, the man said, I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. The man admitted to David that he finished him off. Which is an interesting development as I think about it, because David warned his people, he warned everybody that no one was to lay their hand on the Lord's anointed. But here's the Amalekite who says Saul asked him to finish him off, and he's standing here with the crown and the band in his arm. And I wonder, what did he expect from David in this moment? Did he expect praise? Did he he expect celebration? Do you expect David to be happy to take the crown and and to celebrate? I mean, if we're honest, if you've been with us for any period of time, and if you've been reading along and somebody is after you and somebody is trying to take your life, it's possible that you might be celebrating or at least, at the very least, go, it's finally over. Saul is dead. I mean, there's no more fearing for our lives. There's no more running, looking over our shoulder at every turn. There's no more peer pressure that my integrity is going to be challenged and I'm going to give in. The response, the response the Amalekite witnessed from David, though, was not a celebration. It was pure, unadulterated grief. Verse 11, then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I'm struck by a couple of things here. David pursues God's heart by engaging in all the things. David pursues God's heart by engaging in all the things that God would ask and call on the people of Israel to do when they grieve. As a man after God's own heart, David does the things God would have him do. He does them when he's supposed to do them, and he does them in the manner that it's intended to be done. David seems to know the truth of the proverb that states, don't gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, don't let your heart rejoice or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. He he tears his clothes. He mourns and and weeps and fasts till evening for both Saul and Jonathan. I mean, I understand 
grieving for Jonathan, but grieving for Saul? And I'm also struck by the power of David's grief. Because grief often does things that we don't understand. Yeah? Like the way it elicited such grief from his little army that they too tore their clothes and mourned and wept and fasted till evening with David. Friends, I'm fascinated by grief. I said earlier that sometimes grief is predictable, but often and most of the time, grief is unpredictable. The Sioux Center campus knows this. You all know this if you've been around. But hey, Warden, I've been engaging with a conversation partner through the course of this series, and her name is Brene Brown. Brene is a shame researcher, and she's an expert in things like vulnerability and shame and matters of the heart. And her recent book uh, called Atlas of the Heart has been a gift to me as I've um, wrestled with these texts and as I grow in my understanding of why people do the things they do when they do the things they do like grieve. In a chapter entitled, Places We Go When We're Hurting, Brown quotes grief researcher Elizabeth Gilbert, who says, grief doesn't obey your plans or wishes. Grief will do whatever it wants to you whenever it wants to. Like many of the situations we have found David in, I marvel at how David responds in his grief. Unlike his predecessor, Saul, who was ultimately rejected for the way he handled his own envy and his own grief, his grief over failing as a king and having the Spirit of God taken away from him. Have you ever experienced grief? Has grief obeyed your plans or wishes? Does grief do what you want it to do? Rarely. Or does grief do what it wants when it wants? We each experience grief in different ways. And in her work, Brene says she defines grief this way even though it's different and each one of us grieves in a different way, some things are fairly consistent, like loss, longing, and feeling lost. When thinking about loss, death is certainly the most prevalent loss we face. But but the loss of normality, the, the loss of what could be or the loss of what we understood about someone or something creates grief. Longing, then, is related to loss, but it's not a conscious wanting. Longing is an involuntary yearning for wholeness, for understanding for meaning or or for the opportunity, just one more chance to regain or to simply even touch one more time someone or something that we've lost. Longing is a vital part of grief, but many of us feel like we need to keep our longings to ourselves because we fear we will be misunderstood or that people will think we are lacking in fortitude or resilience. Have you ever experienced that? People might think that we're lacking in fortitude or resilience. Feeling lost is another thing altogether. When we experience grief, 
And when we experience loss, longing and feeling loss to the people around us, the more disconnected we can feel. When we experience grief, we are forced to reimagine our entire world. Everything that we have understood or known is reimagined. And in a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of culture like we live in, talking about grief is difficult because people often want us to simply get over it or they don't have time for us. But here's the thing. This is what I want to say to you today. People who study and understand grief will tell you that grief is complicated. There's even a center for this, the center for complicated grief. Isn't that fantastic? And these people have found that when a person adapts to a loss, grief is not over. Let me say that again. Did you hear that? When a person adapts to a loss, grief is not over. I imagine David felt all three three of these facets of grief as he heard the news. I'm sure he and Jonathan had dreamt of serving the people of Israel together and the loss of what could be would have been really real for David in that moment. I'm also sure he felt the longing of loss. I can hear David lamenting the loss of his closest, deepest relationship and wondering why, why God, why? Why didn't I get one more minute or one more year with Jonathan? And I can also imagine David having to adjust all his thinking in the days and weeks to come as he becomes the king and leads the people of Israel. I wonder what feeling lost was like for David. But in this moment, as we read this morning, David and those with him tore their clothes. They mourned, wept, and fasted for Saul, Jonathan, and the army of Israel. What do you do when you experience grief? I want you to hear these words that David Kessler from the Center for Complicated Grief has to say about grief and our response. Each person's grief is as unique as their fingerprint but what each one has in common is that no matter how they grieve, they share a need for their grief to be witnessed. The need is for someone to be fully present to the magnitude of their loss without trying to point out the silver lining. I want you to sit with that for just a second. Each person's grief is as unique as their fingerprint, but what each one has in common is that no matter how they grieve, they share a need for their grief to be witnessed. The need is for someone to be fully present, for someone to be fully present to the magnitude of their loss without trying to point out the silver lining. When you experience grief, what do you do? Do you grieve? And where do you turn? Because I think where we turn 
matters. Friday night, my family and I were sitting around watching Doctor, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and, and I had to rewind it two or three times because here's Wanda Maximoff who has turned to the dark hold. And some of you are like, what are you talking about right now? But stick with me. She, she turns to this thing that's called the dark hold, which is the book of the damned. And the way the darkhold corrupts everyone and everything it touches grabbed my attention. Because Wanda is grieved over the death of her husband, Vision, and the fact that she is not going to have a family. And so when all the loss and longing and feelings of lostness take control, she turns to the darkhold. And friends, the things of this world have similar effect. Which is why a few minutes ago I used the word lament. Lament is a, is a lost art. And it's what we see our friend David engage in in the midst of his grief. It, it's such a lost art, in fact, that you might not even know what lament is. So let me help you. Lament is a form of prayer that expresses one's pain to God. And after ending the life of the Amalekite for taking Saul's life, David turns his attention back to his grief and offers this beautiful lament. Verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament in the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar, a gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not on the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, may no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, the flesh of the mighty, the, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and admired, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel... Weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Do you hear, see, and feel David's lament? <clears throat> he names the loss in Saul's death, the loss of all that Saul had done for the people of Israel. David names his longing, a, a yearning to be with his friend Jonathan just one more time. And, and in his lament, David expresses the feeling of lostness in his grief by trying to express his feelings. How the mighty have fallen he says multiple times. David pursues God's heart by crying out to God. 
in the throes of his pain. David pursues God's heart in lament. Understanding lament is not a lack of faith. It's a doorway into deeper faith. And over the course of the past couple of weeks, we've invited you into intimacy and integrity as you pursue God's heart by saying, for 30 seconds a day, for a week, tell Jesus how much you love him. And, and then we said, uh, by mistake, I said 60 minutes, right? But I wanted to just go from 30 seconds to 60 seconds last week. Tell Jesus how much you love him daily and then ask the question, where is it that I might be out of integrity? Well, things never stay the same. If they stay the same, they're going backwards. So the invitation for you today is this. This week, I invite you into the journey of lament. And there's no time constraint. The journey of lament is pretty simple. And it can be incredibly difficult and freeing. Both things can be true. It can be incredibly painful and incredibly difficult and incredibly freeing all at the same time. Rather than turning to the things of this world, like alcohol or cutting or food, drugs, gossip, libel, or slander, I invite you to turn to God, to bring your complaint to God, to ask God for help to surrender to God and then choose to trust God. And then one of the ways we do this is by praying uh, the Psalms. Did you know that 60% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament? It's a lot of Psalms, 151, 50. And all 60% of those are lament, and only two don't end in hope. So when you pray and when you lament, use borrowed words like these from Psalm 13. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Lament, borrowed words. And here's another way that you can engage this. Simply grab a notebook, turn on a little mood music, and grab a pen. Sit down and simply lament. Write down what you are lamenting and go on a journey. Give it to God. Give all of it to God. Write out the feelings you have about your loss and ask God to help you be specific in your ask and write everything. I mean, write everything that comes to mind and be patient and keep on writing. 
As I've engaged this practice, it's unbelievable how when my hand starts moving with that pen in my hand on the paper, I just can't stop. And stuff comes spilling out that I didn't even know was there. And then once you've done that, choose to trust God with your lament. Choose to trust God with your lament, this God who sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus, again, is our exemplar. He's the one who showed us the way in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if, if you pray the Psalms, that's one way to lament. You can, you can scrawl it out on paper. This is another way to lament. And if all else fails, just let it out the way Jesus does. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. He says in the garden, not yet as I will, but as you will. And again, just a few minutes later in the garden, he says, my father, if it's it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And finally, he shows us the way of lament on the cross. When he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he breathed his last, a final lament, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Friends, pursue God's heart. Some of you are grieving the loss of grandparents, of parents, and siblings. Others of you are grieving the loss of spouses. Still others grieve the loss of children and your pain is real and it matters to God. But these aren't the only things we grieve. Some are grieving the loss of safety, be it on the playground or at daycare. Still others grieve the loss of hope or dreams. And friends, no matter what it is that you're grieving... Would you turn to God? Would you bring your complaint to God? Would you ask God for help and choose to trust God, the God who is willing to send his son Jesus Christ into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, the fully alive life, and it is available to you, but you can't in your grief go under it, around it, or over it, you have to go through it. And as you do, pursue God's heart, friends, and grieve and lament well. Let's. Thanks for listening to the Centerpoint Church Podcast. Be sure to keep up with us on social media at facebook.com slash wearecenterpoint or on Instagram at wearecenterpoint. We hope to see you soon in person for worship this Sunday at 930.